Well, good morning, everybody, for the second time. After some technological mishaps this morning, I wasn't able to record our sermon that we did online, and so I'm re-recording it here today so that you can check it out if you weren't able to make the online service or technology prevented you from being able to hear it properly or whatever might have gone on. And uh, glad that we were able to gather live together and looking forward to seeing many of you again soon. I don't often highlight my sermon titles, but this one I thought was worth singling out because I recognize that it could be confusing left to its own devices, but once explained could actually be helpful for framing the sermon. You see, it's called the founder of founder's son. And this term, the founder of founders, is a title for God that I came to use in the middle of the sermon because it describes what today's passage tells us. Because God is the founder of founders, that makes Jesus the founder of founders' son. And what we'll see is that because Jesus is the founder of founders' son, he is superior to any earthly leader. This sermon is following in a series that we've been doing on the book of Hebrews at Curve Lake Christian Assembly. I asked Daryl to share the first sermon with Auburn before our service so that people could watch it ahead of time. But if you haven't been able to watch it, it might be worth going back and watching that because I think it will help explain the approach that we're taking in a bit more detail. To summarize what that approach is, the reason why we're studying the book of Hebrews is because of the way that it treats the culture that the author was living in at that point in time. The author draws closely on his culture to explain Jesus to his audience. And it struck me as significant that he doesn't totally reject his culture or respect it as ultimate, as if it can never be toyed with or tampered with. Instead, he takes that which is good in his culture and uses it to teach his followers about Jesus. This is what I like to call redeeming culture. Using the good to glorify God while moving away from the bad. My hope is that by studying how the author of Hebrews does this with his own cultural ideas and symbols, we'll be better equipped to do that with our own cultures in a day where so many of us are exposed to people of other cultures which forces us to reflect more deeply on our own cultural background. Now I want to note that this is a different approach than was taken by the church for a long time, which tended to view Christianity in very monocultural terms. By that, what I mean is that the church often thought that their version of Christianity was the true version of Christianity, and as a result imposed a lot of its cultural ideas, and norms on other cultures. But I think over the last hundred years or so, there's been a greater recognition that inevitably, as we live at our Christian faith, it includes parts of our culture, and that we need to be able to let people take their own cultures and redeem them, rather than forcing one cultural version of Christianity on other people. So this is the approach that we've been taking within this series. Today's topic is the idea of founding figures, those men and women who play a key role in establishing or re-establishing our cultures through history. Now on the screen I have an image of Mount Rushmore, which is a very American symbol, and I chose that partly because as Euro-Canadians, we don't have quite as much reverence for our founding fathers as the Americans do. 
and honestly, in many ways, our culture is a spillover of their culture. So what we're going to be talking about today is how our relationship with people like those captured in Mount Rushmore should relate to our relationship with God and Jesus Christ, his son. I think the principles of this sermon also apply more broadly to any great leader that we're inclined to give our allegiance to. The passage that we're going to be looking at is Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 6. And the question that it raises is how does our loyalty to Jesus relate to our loyalty to earthly leaders? Let's read the passage and dig into that a little bit more this morning. Hebrews 3, verses 1 to 6 reads, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was a faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So again, the question that this passage raises is how does our loyalty to Jesus relate to our loyalty to earthly leaders? And I'm going to ask a few guiding questions to help us draw out how the author goes about answering that question. The first is, how did the Jews in Jesus' day regard Moses? The second is, how did the author of Hebrews use that to teach them about Jesus? And then the third is, what does this mean for us today? And this is where I'm going to camp out the longest to try and help apply the principles that we see in the author's response to our own lives and cultural contexts here today. My primary takeaway, the thing that I hope you will come away with and apply to your own life, is this idea that because God built everything for Jesus, we must give him our ultimate allegiance. Let's dig into that a little further. First of all, how did the Jews in Jesus' day regard Moses? Well, obviously, Moses is not a foreign figure to us. He's still a fairly influential figure in our cultures today. Most of you have heard about Moses, and that's because he plays such a central role in the Old Testament. Moses played a particularly important role in what we call the Exodus, which is the period of time when God brought the Israelites out of slavery to the Egyptians and into the promised land where they could be a people unto themselves free from slavery. Moses played a key role in this because he was appointed as the leader to initiate the Exodus by going and confronting Pharaoh and leading his people out of slavery. And then he also played an important role in helping deliver the Israelites the law that God wanted them to live by once they were established in the promised land. We see that in the Old Testament stories about Moses, he had a very close relationship with God, and often actually is a good model for what it looks like to have an intimate relationship with God. But at the same time, we can see that he is a flawed figure. 
In particular, I note that he often alternates between harmful impulsivity and then defeatism about his own stories. He'll do something really brash, but then he'll get very sad when it doesn't work out very well. And this is something that we see he carried with him throughout a good portion of his adult life. But this flawed figure that we see in scripture doesn't really reflect the great reverence that the Jews had for Moses in Jesus' day. And that's in part because of historical developments that took place between the time of Moses and the time of Jesus. What we see throughout history is that centuries later, Israel was conquered by enemy nations, and many people were taken from the land and brought into foreign countries and made to be part of their cultures. We call this the exile. The understanding among those who were faithful to God is that he allowed this because they didn't follow the law the way that they ought to have. Those who remained in the land or returned to the land, continuing to worship God, began to see the law as the defining feature of their culture, and they saw it as the thing that set them apart from the pagan nations around them. Because Moses helped to deliver the law to the people of Israel, he came to be highly revered within the Hebrew culture. By the time you get to Jesus' day, other writings show that they were even using language of Moses that referred to him as one seated at God's right hand in heaven, helping to judge mankind according to the law that he has given them. For those who are Christians, you'll hear echoes of some of the language that we actually use about Jesus in this descriptor. Now, I want to be really careful. <clears throat> even though it sounds like the things that we say about Jesus, I don't think that it's something we should fully equate. There are definitely differences there. For example, the Jews in Jesus' day definitely did not regard Moses as being divine. They also still had room for the idea of a Messiah, a promised king who was going to rescue his people from their new slavery. So it's not like they were equating what we think Jesus fulfilled and what Moses fulfilled but they had a very, very high respect for him and saw him as playing a central role in their culture and in God's plans for the world in an ongoing way. The closest modern equivalent I could think of is the way that Muslims regard Muhammad, who some sects even ban images of because of the fact that they don't want to disrespect him, although that's not universally held by all Muslims. Again, the Muslims don't regard Muhammad as divine the way that we view Jesus, but they regard him as the founding father of their society and basically God's right-hand man. And this is exactly how the Jews would have viewed Moses in Jesus' day. The Jews of Jesus' day had a very, very high level of respect for Moses. So then how did the author of Hebrews use this to teach them about Jesus? Well, first... I want to specify what he doesn't do. He doesn't do what I might have been tempted to do if I was writing the book of Hebrews, which is to point out Moses' flaws. It would have been very easy for the author of Hebrews to say, you love this guy so much, but actually he made a lot of mistakes. He killed a man instead of trying to help his people properly and had to run from the country for 40 years. He he didn't believe enough in himself to be able to trust God and had to have his brother help him out with the task of freeing his people. 
he got into a lot of conflicts with his people over the time that he was leading and wanted to give up on them on a number of different occasions. And ultimately, he didn't even get to enter into the promised land. So why do you have such a high level of respect for this man? He also could have pointed out that the reason why they had such a high level of respect for Moses was maybe because they didn't have a fully biblical view of him. And he could have pointed them and said, go reread your Bible and be a little more careful about how you view this man. Recognize that he is flawed. But you notice he doesn't do any of these things. Instead of pointing out Moses' imperfections in disobedience, he honors the respect that his culture has for Moses in his day. He doesn't at all try to diminish that affection. He still regards him as a faithful servant. But what he does is he places this within its proper context by using an analogy. The image that he draws on is a house being built. Of course, he has an ancient understanding of what this looks like, so the house that he's envisioning would have been run according to certain ancient rules. Within that house, he regards Moses as an important household servant, a vital part of the team to keep the household functioning. He says that Moses was a faithful servant, and he acknowledges the fact that he really was a builder of the house in the way that we've talked about, the idea that he's kind of the founding father of the Jewish people. But he also points out that behind every builder is God, who builds everything. That he's the head of the household, who initiated and made the building possible in the first place. I think we recognize when we read over this passage that what he says of God in this context is not just true of Israel. God is the builder of everything, is what he says. In other words, if Moses is Israel's founding father, God is the founder of founders. He's the one who made their life and ministry possible in the first place, and he has greater authority and greater reverence than they do. So he contextualizes Moses, and this would have been pretty standard for them. Of course, Moses is under God. That's something that they recognize. But then he builds on this analogy even further and notes that Moses is also under Jesus because Jesus is God's son. He's not just another builder like Moses. He's actually the heir to the household, which is how ancient households would have functioned. You had the head of the household who was in charge of the thing and financed the thing and was responsible for all of the major decisions. And then you had the firstborn son, who was his heir, who was going to inherit it and was being groomed to be the one leading the household. Jesus is God's son, which means he will inherit and run the house of God's people. And what we see when we acknowledge that God is the builder of everything is ultimately what the author of Hebrews is pointing us towards is that because everything is built by God, he builds it for his son, Jesus, so that Jesus can be in charge of it. This means Jesus' authority is infinitely superior to Moses's, despite the fact that Moses was a faithful servant deserving of honor. In this way, the author of Hebrews uses his audience's respect for Moses to teach them about Jesus. In essence, what he says 
is, you know how much respect you have for Moses? Jesus deserves even more respect than that. So that's how the author uses his audience's view of Moses to teach them about Jesus. So then what does this mean for us today? This brings me back to the primary takeaway that I have for us this morning, which is that because God built everything for Jesus, we must give him our ultimate allegiance. Whatever culture or society we're from, there are leaders we hold in high esteem. That's good, but we must never let our loyalty to them compete with our loyalty to Jesus. Now, how does this play out in practice? Three things occurred to me. When we give Jesus our ultimate allegiance, we have to evaluate our earthly leaders by his standards. Alongside that, we need to obey Jesus above our earthly leaders. And finally, we need to love others who live by Jesus' standards, even if they follow different earthly leaders than we do. Let's consider each of these things in turn. First of all, when we give Jesus our ultimate allegiance, we evaluate earthly leaders by his standards. We live at an unusual time when a lot of parents are learning to teach their kids more at home than they have in the past. And of course, that brings with it a need to be able to teach and understand what kids are supposed to be learning and to evaluate how well they're learning those things. If you're correcting your kids' homework, one of the things you need is to be able to know what the right answers are. If you don't know the correct answer to a math equation, you can't tell your child whether they are right or wrong in that. Well, in the same way, when it comes to evaluating our earthly leaders, we have to have a standard that we can appeal to to understand what it is we should be looking for from them. And what Jesus teaches and models provides that standard. We must ask, what kind of example are leaders set? Do they have Christ-like character? Are they humble and loving and patient and kind? We also have to evaluate what kind of impact they have on society. Do they help us to live the way that Jesus' followers lived in light of his ministry? Do they care for each other and love each other? Do they make sure that they're actually living righteous lives that line up with God's standards? Are they challenging each other to, to be the best people they can be together? Or are they missing on some of those fronts, and are our leaders failing to encourage those things? If our leaders do what Jesus would want them to do, we can affirm them. But if not, we have to denounce them. That's a harsh word, but I think it reflects the relationship we have to have with our leaders. We hold them accountable according to Christ's standards. And I think it's important to note that truly godly leaders will invite this. The leaders who understand their responsibilities best are the ones who recognize that they are subject to a greater authority than themselves. And they will invite their people to hold them up to those standards. One of the examples that came up when we were talking about this in our Bible study was Billy Graham. Billy Graham basically is the founder of contemporary evangelicalism, which is the church movement that most of us are part of. And I think Billy Graham, however great he was, would have been the first to say that we should evaluate his life 
by how much it lined up with Jesus' standards. If he taught or did something that Jesus wouldn't approve of, he would want us to not approve of that. And vice versa, inasmuch as he was teaching and doing things that Jesus wanted him to do, then he would have wanted us to be grateful for that and to celebrate it. This is how we should relate to our leaders. Do they line up with Christ's standards? That shows that our ultimate allegiance is to him. Alongside that, when we give Jesus our ultimate allegiance, we obey him over our earthly leaders. Now, I think it's important to note that when it comes to our participation in communities, we should generally do so in a way that lines up with the standards that our leaders set. We see that God has actually tasked leaders with the responsibility of giving us good laws and rules so that we can work together as a people group more effectively. God loves an orderly, harmonious society, and he has given leaders responsibility for cultivating that. So generally speaking, when we see our leaders promoting that kind of society, we should be willing to submit to them and to abide by the rules that they set. However, if those standards ever go against Jesus' standards, we have to depart from them. We need to live differently than what our leaders are expecting and what the norms of our society dictate. This is actually what got Christians in hot water with Caesar during the early church. They refused to say they would do everything that he dictated of them, and they sometimes checked out of certain civil functions because they didn't believe that they respected God the way that they ought to have. And this is the kind of thing that led to them getting persecuted and hated by a lot of the people around them because they were seen as promoting disorder. But it's important to note that the goal of this is never ultimately disorder. This can never be done out of a rebellious spirit, even when it actually leads to overt disobedience on a civil level. The goal is always to change our society to be more like what God would want so that we can live an orderly and harmonious life. And this is something we see repeated over and over throughout scripture, that this should be our aim, is to live in a good society in harmony with the people around us. One of the examples that came to mind as I was reflecting on this was Martin Luther King Jr. In, a, in the middle of an era of civil rights movements where there were a great number of leaders, Martin Luther Jr. King, uh, King Jr. stands out among them because of the respectful but persistent way that he opposed the way that his country was run. Generations later, we look back on him and recognize that's what it looks like to do godly civil resistance. If we're really giving Christ our ultimate allegiance, we have to be prepared to depart from what our leaders expect of us if it goes against what Jesus would have wanted to, for us. We obey him above other earthly leaders. Finally, when we give Jesus our ultimate allegiance, we must love those who live by his standards, even if they follow different earthly leaders than us. It, it's important to note that because of the way human psychology works, our group loyalty always tempts us to look down on people who are different than us. Unfortunately, this leads to a great deal of devastation throughout history. And I think this is especially relevant in a day and age where the internet tends to bubble us up against one another so that we're closed off to those who think differently than we do. And so it becomes very easy for us to think that anybody who's thinking differently than us or following a different leader than us must be doing so because they're bad, they're sinful, or they're ignorant, or something like that. But we must resist this. 
If we truly believe that following Jesus trumps everything else, we must love and respect those who do so, even if we don't agree with or understand their other loyalties. One of the amazing examples of this from history takes place during World War I. This is a story I heard as a kid that I thought must have just been a bit of a fairy tale, but actually it really happened in history. On Christmas during the war, troops on both sides of the war stopped fighting against each other and came together to celebrate Christmas together as a sign of their ultimate love for Jesus. This actually angered the people who were leading them at the time because they were worried it would undermine the war efforts. They're not going to want to fight against each other anymore if they've sat down and had a meal together and celebrated together. Now, of course, the war did continue, but I think there's even stories of troops who did end up being sent home because they no longer had the will to fight against each other in that context because they came to see each other differently from that experience. This so-called Christmas truce is an amazing illustration of the kind of love we should have for one another, even when we're divided by our earthly allegiance. That's what it looks like to give Jesus our ultimate allegiance. It's to love those who follow him, even if they follow somebody else on earth. So giving Jesus our ultimate allegiance requires evaluating our earthly leaders by his standards, obeying him above earthly leaders, and loving those who live by his standards, even if they follow different earthly leaders than us. Now, I wanted to highlight one leader that came up in our conversation on Wednesday, because I think that her life is an amazing illustration of what godly leadership looks like uh, and can show us how we can regard our leaders in high esteem while still acknowledging our ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ. This is Elsie Knott. She played an important role in the history of Curve Lake, and one of the ladies happened to have uh, an article that was written in the Peterborough Examiner about her when she passed away and shared it with us on Wednesday. I want to read it out loud to you so that you can hear what was written about Elsie Knott, and I think show what a godly leader really looks like. The article reads, A funeral service for Canada's first woman native chief will be held Wednesday in the church she helped build in Curve Lake. Elsie Marie Knott, a former chief of Curve Lake, First Nation, died Sunday in her home. She was 73. Mrs. Knott helped to revive the powwow and was responsible for starting a grocery store, daycare center, post office, and getting housing agreements. She once worked as a Sunday school teacher at Curve Lake First Nation and later became church superintendent. She also organized the Brownies, Girl Guides, Boy Scouts, and Cubs at Curve Lake and was a familiar sight for 25 years, driving the Curve Lake school bus to and from Lakefield. Mrs. Knott was a native elder, a senator of the Union of Ontario Indians, which represents 57 bands, and was a director in the council organization, which represents 17 reserves. She was named one of Ontario's outstanding women in 1975 during International Women's Year. In 1977, Mrs. Knott told the examiner she once sewed pajamas for native patients for 35 cents a pair just to make ends meet. This week, she was remembered by current chief Keith Knott as a perfect role model. In 1953, when Mrs. Knott was elected as chief at Curve Lake, she made history by becoming the first female to ever hold that position in Canada. She served as chief from 1954 to 1962, and again from 1970 to 1976. 
Throughout her political years and beyond, she had the community's best interest at heart, said Chief Knott. The year after she was first elected, she started the powwow, a day-long attraction with dances, songs, and crafts. Starting out with some job, Mrs. Knott told the examiner in a 1970 interview, I had to go to Brantford to get the costumes and up past Halliburton to get the peace pipe. That first year, the war dance was done on a platform made of sawhorses with a board on top. Married at age 15, Mrs. Knott had three children and was later widowed. It was Mrs. Knott who initiated the Decoration Day services at the Curve Lake Cemetery, where she will be buried later this week. The rest of the article describes the family she left behind and the funeral services details. What stood out to me when this was shared on Wednesday was what an amazing example of Christ-like humility Elsie Knott was. It's apparent that she was willing to do very simple things to help out her community, even as she was doing great things, like revitalizing her culture. She also had a deep love for her culture in a very obvious way in this example. But I think the thing that she would have wanted above all else is for people to recognize that there was somebody greater than her, that being Jesus. And that was shared also in our conversation on Wednesday, when Rita and Marg shared about memories of her and the fact that she was such a, a, a follower of Christ that she was constantly pointing people back towards him. We can honor a lady like Elsie Knott and to recognize that what she accomplished is, is amazing, both on a community level and even on a historic level, while still recognizing that she, like us, is under Jesus Christ as our ultimate authority. Again, the primary takeaway I have for you this morning, because God built everything for Jesus, we must give him our ultimate allegiance. We can honor our earthly leaders while still recognizing that Jesus is the Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we had together this morning to worship and to honor you and to reflect on your word. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to save us from sin and to show us what life with you truly looks like. I pray that each of us would be able to follow him above all else, even as we follow our earthly leaders and attempt to build good cultures under their leadership. Father, bless us as we continue with our day and reflect on this. In Jesus' name, amen. I do have a couple of reflection questions that you can take home and think about in your spare time, maybe talk with your family about or give somebody from your church a call and chit-chat with them about this. First of all, what earthly leaders do you and your culture respect? If you evaluate them according to Jesus' standards, how well do they fare? Second, have you ever had to go against an earthly leader in order to obey Jesus? If so, what happened? And third, have you ever been tempted to write someone off because they were very different than you, only to later discover that they too were a Christian? If so, who were they, and what happened to change your mind? I hope that you'll think about these questions and this broader theme of giving Jesus our ultimate allegiance, that you have a great week, and that we'll be able to see each other again soon. God bless.